you're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations, all while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. Now here's your host, Robin Waite. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Fearless Business Podcast. I am your host, Robin Waite, the Fearless Business Coach. We've got a fascinating guest with us today. It's Mark Nichols, the founder of the Tech Toner Partnership. Uh, Mark has managed a team of over 100 people at Business Link in the past for his sins, Business Link. No more, are they, Mark? They've, they've gone now, haven't they? No, they were culled by the Conservative government in 2010, I think, 29, 2010. Oh, goodness. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, Mark, and we're going to be learning all about Tectona shortly. Um, but I want to kick this off. Mark is a numbers guy, and uh, I'm just curious. You work with a lot of CFOs and FDs, so uh, what, what are they, and what do they actually do? Well, hi, Robin. Thanks so much for having us it's on, on, on your podcast. Um, what do um, FDs or CFOs, um, finance directors or chief financial officers, get up to? Um, well, firstly, any business is absolutely nothing unless it's got proper and good and robust management information. So I think one of the key things that a CFO, a chief financial officer, does is actually make sure that that MI factory, the management information factory, is actually producing the right sort of stuff. Um, in order to do that, you've got to have the right processes in place. These are financial systems, financial processes, with the right financial controls, um, and also the right people. Um, and with people, as we know, comes a real skill set in being able to manage and motivate those people. So that's another bit for the finance director stroke CFO does. What, um, explain to us what, man- what you mean by management information as well, because this is, you know, we work with a lot of um, coaches, consultants, freelancers, and, you know, that's a technical term that might be kind of um, new to them. So what's, what, is, what do you mean by management information? Management information, I guess, is sort of the rear view mirror stuff. It's, it's first identifying what you ought to know about your business to be able to make informed decisions about where you're going next. The rear view mirror is, is merely telling you where you've been. The really insightful CFO will be able to say not only where you've been, but use that information to guide which direction you go in the future. So the management information typically is a, a, a smaller business is probably a quarterly or even a six monthly um, pack, which identifies all the back two or three pages, which identifies the key uh, performance indicators of the business. Um, for a larger business, it may well be uh, monthly um, and possibly even more frequently than that. So uh, there's probably a lot of small businesses out there thinking, oh gosh, this, you know, all these numbers and reports and things like that. It's not really for me. But what, what are the actual dangers though of a small business kind of just ignoring these and burying their heads in the sand and pretending they don't need to keep up to date with the numbers? I think the, the biggest challenge is probably now, as we're talking in the middle of the COVID um, um, pandemic, is if you are not making a plan or identifying at least what might happen, and I know it's very difficult indeed when you're not quite sure when these things are going to come to an end and things return to us or whatever the new normal looks like. If you don't have a plan, you are really going to be storing up big problems for yourself in the future. It would be very nice to sort of pick up on that a little bit later on, I suspect, in terms of what are the issues that are facing businesses at the moment. But without regular monitoring of where you're at in your business, um, it makes it very much more difficult 
to get to where you want to get to. And I, I bet you've probably seen, not just from a financial perspective, you've probably seen some horror stories of businesses just, you know, kind of ignoring these um, uh, key performance indicators within their, the, fin- you know, the numbers and um, kind of things going horribly wrong. So what what are you willing to share? You don't have to name them, by the way. Just um, have you got anything you want to sort of share? Oh, well, I, I, I mean, it links. I mean, one of the top, I know my stuff. What I used to get up to before I became an accountant was I was a civil engineer. Well, I graduated as a civil engineer. I never actually practiced this one, I have to say. Joined the accountancy profession. Um, then um, worked in sort of, the, in sort of the general practice stroke audit side of things. But then, and this is not an answering your question, moved on to the insolvency side of things, meaning when businesses uh, go bust or when things don't go quite so well. So when in those days when the banks appointed administrators or receivers or liquidators, names we're probably or terms we're very familiar with nowadays. Um, and you know, I've always sort of believed that when you do something, you, there's got to be a reason for doing it, the why. I think that's sort of one of your mantras as well, you know, that you teach your, your, your uh, or, 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 sort of, preach to your, not preach is the wrong word, tell, ask, or suggest that your, your, your colleagues really do focus on. And the why that drives me and Tectona now, and indeed it drove previously when I was working at Business Link, was having seen so many businesses go into insolvent proceedings and actually having to manage those proceedings on behalf of the, of the banks usually, um, was how the hell can I stop people, help stop people getting to that position? Uh, one of the things I did, if you want an example, um, we had, I think we're probably old enough, I'm certainly old enough, to have heard of something called BCCI, uh, which is the Bank of Credit, Credit, Commerce, and, uh, Credit and Commerce International, which went spectacularly um, early up in the late 80s, 89, 90. Um, and one of my abiding memories, which really sort of um, stuck with me, was we had to coordinate as, as liquidators of the bank then. Uh, on day one, before anyone knew about it, we had to um, coordinate a, a swoop, if you like, onto 10 or 12 branches in the UK simultaneously, almost to the minute, and actually go into the branches as individuals get the bank manager to come and see you. I mean, we all know how hard it is to talk to your bank manager anyhow. Um, get the bank manager to come and see you uh, and actually tell him you're closing his branch down, um, which is what I had to do. That was very character-building stuff. He wasn't particularly happy about this, you might understand. Um, I think there's another example when we were working for a, an organisation which um, uh, took uh, lorry chassis and, and modified them for another use. Um, we were appointed the receivers of that business. And I was attacked with someone wielding a flamethrower um, which is probably not the nicest thing to have to face um, because he didn't actually agree with the way I was telling him he wasn't going to get paid for what he was doing. Well, it, so kind of, it kind of breaks the day up a little bit, doesn't it? If you've got somebody wielding a flamethrower coming for you, but probably not, you know, it wasn't an occupational hazard that necessarily you... you... <laughs> Thankfully not. Yeah. But it's, it's, the point here is, Robin, is having seen businesses um, fail, typically, um, in, the, in the case of the, the huge BCCI, um, which you know, was a billion-dollar failure business. It, that was due to fraud and, and, and malfeasance and God knows what else, and, 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 and prison sentences were handed out to a number of the, the directors and customers of the bank. Um, smaller businesses, the ones we're talking about here, you know, if you don't get it right, I, the advantage I saw of actually working in the insolvency world was that if you don't get it right, you're going to, and I can recognise quite early, you're going to be going down a fairly sticky path. And if you leave it too late, it's very difficult to recover. Uh, it's it's interesting though, as we're going through the crisis and you see these kind of really big businesses, you know, high street restaurant chains going under and uh, yeah. things like that. You know, the administrators getting called in for airlines at the moment, um, various other big businesses. 
and and there's a part of me which is kind of um you know do these businesses like big or small nobody seems to have any kind of contingency and they're they're running so close to the line a lot of the time that surely somebody in those businesses looked at the numbers and go if we had a crisis they couldn't have necessarily predicted the pandemic that we're going through at the moment but do they not have anything kind of waiting in the wings, like a, a backup plan or a, a con- contingency pot or anything like that? It just baffles me that you know, a week or two's worth of disruption straight away the administrators come in. I think when an administrator is appointed, things have been going wrong for some time. Right? And we only get to hear about it, as Joe Public, uh, when it does go wrong. I, I'm reminded of one thing which went into administration, again, early 90s, something called Paramount Airways based in Birmingham. They were sort of a charter airline. Um, and we had to take over the running of the airline, which is, was really quite fun for me since I was a pilot at the time, still am a pilot. So that was really exciting. But the reality is, when things start going wrong, that contingency, that sort of safe haven, if you like, is, is, is a, or that safe haven plan is, is activated. But it doesn't tend to last that long, because particularly when we're dealing with airlines in that industry, or indeed leisure sector for that matter now, if you haven't got the income streams coming in, Chew, they chew, they've got a huge overhead structure. They chew up the, the cash immensely quickly. And that's where I'd like to delve onto a little bit further when we move on to other matters, I suspect, Robin, <laughs> uh, about, about cash. Absolutely. So, I didn't know. Oh, I, I did know you were a pilot, actually. So have you been able to fly during lockdown? Nah, not yet. Um, uh, 4th of July is, is day one. But I think the problem is going to be there's going to be loads of people like me gagging to get in the air, um, very rusty, having not flown for three straight four months. And I suspect there's going to be a lot of bad um, airmanship uh, and probably a significantly higher level of risk. So if I ask you to come up flying in the next couple of weeks, I'm, I'm likely to decline. It's probably not going to be particularly safe up there. See, there's the numbers guy coming out there, just weighing up all of the different risks. And yeah, we'll be looking. Safety I'll be looking first. at the stats for how many. If there's an increase in um, air, air accidents, a small small aircraft in the UK over the coming weeks. I'm hoping it'll be it'll be more air, air misses rather than accidents. But you never, you never know. <laughs> Doesn't bear thinking about, really, does it? No, don't um, <laughs> so I, I'm curious though one thing which we haven't covered so obviously I mean you, you gave us a bit of an insight into your background about kind of um, working as a civil engineer like how do you be- move from a, becoming a civil engineer into becoming a, a chartered accountant what what was the decision making process behind that? Um, I, mean, it, I think it was horribly basic um, there, there was I as a 21, 22 year old graduate having just got my uh, civil engineering qualification degree um, even then they had this thing called the milk round. Um, I have to say the people manning the stands on the milk round at the university um, were prettier, um, they were far more engaging, uh, and they were offering more money than if I were to go to an engineering job. And I'm afraid I took the shilling um, and went into accountancy. And I have to say the combination of engineering and accountancy, whilst I've never used engineering in anger, um, I think it's a quite an interesting mix. It works very well. And and through the work which you do at Tectona now, so you actually um, help to place um, CFOs and FDs into other people's businesses, don't you? So you have a, a group of about 20 or 30 sort of, um, you know, high-level accountants, char- chartered accountants. Um, uh, how, how do you find the clients or how do they find you? What sort of the process which you go through to kind of marry the two? It's a bit like a dating service, isn't it, for businesses and and numbers it, peoples. It is. We're like a recruiter, I suppose, in reverse. In my, in my, in my simple terms, a recruiter is someone who's retained by a business to go out and find a person to do a role. Um, we do it the other way around, where we've got a team that's actually 15 um, CFOs, and they are all 
uh, accountants who are qualified um, and, and have actually not critically been working in business. So they've got that commercial bit, um, which very few accountants who are working in practice by that, I mean, with the accountancy firms now, um, seem to have that commercial um, sprinkled dust, magic dust, if you like. Uh, and I'm guessing they've been busier as well during the current crisis, kind of, you know, um, making everything kind of add up, basically. It's, it's, it, it's uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely spot on. It, they, they've been busy as anything, um, primarily working with their existing clients um, to uh, tap into uh, the various resources available. By that, I'm talking about, the, 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 I don't want to get too specific, but the job retention scheme, which was being wound down, the furlough scheme, and also the C-bills and the bounce-back loans, which the government has guaranteed to an extent. Um, and so there's been a lot of activity uh, on that. You asked the question earlier on, how do our clients find this? Um, a lot of it is actually through word of mouth. I'm a great believer that people buy people, um, and therefore a lot of our sort of, in fact, comes business development activity. It's talking to people not dissimilar to you, Robin, or accountants or bankers, those sort of people who are engaging and meeting and are trusted and liked um, by their followers, their cohort, um, and are probably best placed to identify when things are not quite, quite right financially in the business. So that's that's where we tend to get most of it on it. We get all, almost all our work. 87% of our work is through referrals. Eight, that's quite specific, 87%. I like that. Um, you mentioned a couple of kind of pinch points there about the um, things like the furlough scheme kind of getting gradually wound down. So what other pinch points do you feel that businesses are going to have to go through before we start to kind of hopefully come out the other side of this? I think the biggest challenge, and it is very specific to the here and now, um, when you're running a business, you're going to get knocked sideways. There are going to be risks that sort of come come and get you from all, all directions. And the classic one is one of your major customers either refuses to pay, uh, which is a problem, or indeed, possibly worse, goes, goes belly up and, and, and you don't get paid. The advantage of that is, over the current situation, is it's a finite hit you're taking, 40,000, 30,000, 20,000, whatever it might be, and you can react accordingly. I think the real problem with the, the, the pandemic, coronavirus pandemic at the moment is, whilst we're starting to come out of recession, no one quite, out of, out of lockdown, no one quite knows what the future holds, whether it's going to be a sort of a sharp hockey stick um, back to normal. Is it going to be a sort of a more gradual back to normal? Is it going to be a more gradual back to less than normal? Is it going to be a another dip coming in October, November, December time? And it's that sort of unquantifiable bit which makes planning so much more difficult and therefore having to be so much more prudent. Um, but if I may, to answer your question, I think we see the biggest issues arising, firstly, as you've alluded to, when the furloughing scheme um, tapers off, uh, which it's starting to do from, from, from now uh, until October. So first point is when businesses can no longer rely on, on that furloughing fu fu funding. The next big issue, I think, is going to be um, when all the loans which have been taken out under the government schemes, the C-bills and the bounce-back loans, which are interest-free and cost-free for the first 12, and repayment-free for the first 12 months, uh, when they start biting, or biting back even, um, after 12 months. So that's going to be in sort of April, May, June next year. Um, I think that's going to be a big issue. A lot of businesses have taken advantage of the VAT deferment schemes offered by the government which means in March next year, there's going to be a double whammy on VAT. Um, and I think if you add all that together into the mix, there's a number of points where businesses are likely to be experiencing cash flow shortages. And I think it would make absolute sense, wouldn't it, um, to be for each business to be modelling what that looks like and taking early action 
early action to actually put stuff in place from actually having a panic application to the bank or your funder or lender or, or, or shareholders saying help <laughs> we haven't planned this but you know we need money now well one, one of the interesting things which i've um, seen in the small business community especially is that we do have access to things like c bills and the the bounce back loan scheme um well bounce back loan scheme more so for small businesses but yeah. i've seen actually a lot of bit small business owners being quite prudent about it they're not just taking out the bounce back loan and then you know spending the whole thing on a marketing campaign or going out and buying a new premises or things like that i mean there will be some of that going on i've actually seen a lot of business owners who are just like Do you know what i'm just gonna i'm gonna take it because it's there and it's accessible and I'm going to put it in my bank because we don't know how long this is going to last for, which I think is kind of quite sensible. I know that it's kind of there to stimulate the economy, but I think it also just kind of, um, those different kind of pinch points that you talked about, it kind of spaces them out quite nicely, which should hopefully save the economy too big a hit all in one go. Is it just a matter of stockpiling cash though? Is that a way to kind of protect, not just for now, but to protect businesses in the future as well? I think it's a combination of two things. One is making sure you are sufficiently resilient. And clearly businesses who went into this, uh, I'm sorry to reflect on the coronavirus, but it it is a here and now, um, went into into lockdown with fat or reserves of cash uh, are obviously going to be better placed. And I think that makes absolute sense to maximise whatever cash you can get, Um, and particularly with bounce back and seedles, which is not costing you anything for 12 months. If you can get it, fantastic, do it. But I think there's also the other side of it, which is manage your costs and particularly overhead costs. And if we're talking about consulting businesses, um, profit margin is absolutely key in those businesses and overhead or excessive overheads can be a real killer. And that was one of the decisions we took when we set up Tectona in 2012. So almost 10 years, eight, eight, 10 years ago. was that we were going to make sure we had a very low overhead structure. So if things didn't go as well as we expected, then we didn't have, we had more space, more time, if you like, to be able to manage through um, any downturn, which is fortunate given (laughs) that coronavirus has come along. It's funny because one of of the things which I talk a lot about is that actually success kind of lulls you into false sense of security, especially when it comes to kind of the financial side of things. And what I tend to see is that business owners will have a big influx of cash and they never have a cash flow problem because the money flows in, but it also swiftly flows straight back out again. So cash flow is never the issue. The issue is always making more money and then keeping hold of it. Um, And and so when you say kind of keeping costs down, um, you know, business owners just have to, I think... it's easy for me to say business owners just have to be a bit more sensible with, you know, and it's that analytical piece where they don't need to just be counting how many pennies are coming in, but they need to know if they're going to be spending money on a marketing campaign, are they actually getting a return on investment for that, that money? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, even, it's even more important than that to actually have a, have a, have a finger on the pulse because you know, many businesses that we see, do not spend time looking at how they're operating financially. And their litmus test or their barometer is literally how much bank uh, cash have we got in the bank, um, which is fine if you've got loads of it and you don't really have to worry, fine. But not many businesses have that luxury. And I think you know, businesses should be more, or I recommend businesses to be more robust in the way they look at their finances. Sorry, I did I cut you off. You're about to finish. That's off, okay. Though. I did a little study, um, which actually I did at the start of the year, even before coronavirus hit, because one of the, about um, uh, three quarters of my clients have um, a cash buffer, and I did a study of just businesses in general, and 95% of businesses. I mean, I didn't. It's not a massive, a really extensive. It's about 300 businesses um, took part in it. 95% of businesses 
don't have a buffer at all, nothing in savings. And they're just literally off, like flying by the seat of their pants when it comes to kind of cash in the business. So I, th- I think it's super dangerous. And there's an element of me as well, which is, um, I mean, you know, I, I can be slightly, um, I, I don't mind kind of saying it how it is. Um, we're going to lose a few businesses and it won't be a waste. I, I hate to say it, you know, the, we are separating the wheat from the chaff a little bit um, through what's been going on. It's fascinating. A lot of my time, bearing in mind 87% of our work comes through referrals, I'm spending a lot of time now talking to bankers. Um, and it's fascinating hearing what they've got to say. And, and, and you know, they, for quite some time, they've been talking about um, the walking dead or the, or, or, or the zombie companies, the ones which are only surviving because, A, the bank doesn't want to pull the plug at the moment because they're not going to get much back from their investment or their, 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 their loans. Um, uh, and secondly, um, I've got my train of thought on this. <laughs> you carry on talking; it'll come back to me. In a moment. <laughs> well, it's it's the whole notion that you know that actually it's, it's no bad thing to lose a few businesses, and actually, you know, I, I I think the number of businesses we had in the UK was vastly overinflated above where we should be. Six million small businesses, and I think that number should be closer to four or five million. Um, you know, because there's a lot of dormant companies in there. There's a lot of people who are kind of just doing this as a hobby, not really taking it that seriously and kind of using up valuable resources mm-hmm. that could just be spread throughout the rest of the economy. And I, I know that a lot of people are going to find that kind of a bit a bit of a hard pill to swallow, but that, it, that unfortunately is the truth of it. I, I suspect those businesses know who they are as well. Yeah. But going back to your point about bounce back, which is the £50,000 loan, which is available, um, you know, it makes absolute sense to go for it. I mean, you know, some uh, observers have, have jibed that, you know, you just have to have a pulse and you'll, you'll get that. It's a self-certification process. But what it does do is an interesting, um, I suppose, psychological piece, which whether you need the money or not, it does give you that safety blanket mentally in yeah. case things don't go, go wrong. And you possibly might actually take on a little bit of a marketing, not spend a whole lot of marketing, but start doing a marketing campaign you probably would not have done, uh, which can only be a good thing, I suspect, if it's done properly um, as we come out of lockdown. Where where do you start with something like um, scenario planning? I'm guessing there are kind of clues when you get your management reports back or just look at your the figures in your business. I'm guessing there are kind of some clues in there. Um, h- how can you start to unpick that and start to kind of um, plan for the worst? Well, I'm a great believer that people who are running businesses are doing it probably because they want to, not necessarily, but probably because they want to. And they probably know that business better than anyone else, particularly someone like me coming in blind or cold. And I think what we can actually do and where we can really help is provide a bit of a playground um, to sort of model what they're doing at the moment for their particular business and then help them identify what are the key levers that they could pull in the business, putting their prices up, selling more, reducing cost of sales, um, chasing their debtors, people with money, debtors quick, more quickly. Um, what, are, what are the effect of pulling those levers and, and how hard should you pull them to actually end up with a business which actually makes sense? Uh, and one of the fascinating things that I often see and it is in a response to someone saying, I want to grow the business, Mark. I've got to go to the bank to get some more funding because we know growing a business does chew up funding, chew up cash. Um, and we can help them model that. Um, and very often, growing the business ranks four, five, or six in terms of the things that they should be doing or could be doing. Uh, at which point, and this is where I make myself unpopular with them, I'm saying, actually, you need to be doing other things first, the structure of the business financially, before you start turning up the volume dial and doing more of the same thing. 
Which so one that's of them putting the prices up, isn't it? One of my favourite topics. Oh, let's get you going on that one, shall we? <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, and conversely, um, think very carefully before you put your prices down or discount, because that's a, uh, another can of worms if you get into that one, potentially. There may be good reasons for doing it, but uh, um, I, would, I would hesitate to, to recommend it to, to most businesses. Well, the, the most common reason for discounting is kind of to um, it, uh, artificially stimulate demand. But as you and I both know, well, actually, you you helped me kind of like hone the numbers actually um, during a, a conversation we, we did live actually into the group a while back. And it was remarkable that actually most people assumed that, you know, if, if, you, if you offer a discount by 10%, You've only got to sell 10% more of the same thing in order to make the same amount yeah. of money. But that's not true, is it? Well, it's, it's not. And I mean, you're familiar with our, our, our lovely little laminated things. It probably doesn't come through on here, but it's a, a, a laminate. I mean, just if you were to discount your prices, and say you're a consultancy business, business making 30% gross profit, that's assuming people call gross margins, some percentage, whatever you want to call it. Um, if you were to discount your prices by 5%, you've got to sell 20% more stuff just to stay still uh, to more of your services. Um, so it's not a, a linear um, issue. It's a, it's a big issue to actually fight back once you've started discounting. But it does work the other way around. If you put your prices up, it gives you, uh, you can afford to lose quite a bit more business uh, than the amount you put your prices up by. So why do you think people are kind of make, you know, they're, they're fearful when left to their own devices, they always go the opposite way to what they should be doing. Yeah. Why, why do we, why do you think people kind of start turning to things like discounting? Is it out of sheer desperation? Don't get me wrong. I mean, sometimes discounting is right, but I think before you do it, you've got to understand the implications of doing it. And if your business has got a very thin gross margin or profit, gross profit percentage, uh, you've got to think very carefully before you do that sort of thing. Um, but you know, business, People in business tend to know their business and they'll make mistakes. Of course they will. I'm not saying I, I don't make mistakes I, uh, at all, but at least I can, I can helpfully, hopefully be helpful and show them the implications of doing what they think they want to do. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's where the challenge is and that's where it can get an uncomfortable conversation because quite often it contradicts with what, uh, what they think they want to do. It's. Um, I'm going to loop back around on something which you said earlier on as well. It's all kind of linked to the the financial side of things. But um, you know, uh, taking investment in a business, for example. So as a as a coach, I quite often get approached by people who've got great ideas for businesses, um, but they don't necessarily have a great business for the idea. And so I've kind of rationalised that um, so that so everybody gets the feeling for this. So imagine you've got somebody who's got a tech startup and they want to borrow um, or get an investor on board and the investment's got to, investor's got to invest something like 100K in order to get an, an equity stake in their business, 40% or something like, or 10%. So it's, mm -hmm. it's irrelevant. And um, so I get approached by, you know, quite often by people who want to start startups and they want to get um, investment, things like that. And I'll ask a simple question, which is, cool, so um, how much have you invested in your business? And they'll be like, well, nothing. You know, this is why I want to get an investor on board. And I'm like, right, okay. And why why haven't you? Have you not got access to 100K? And they're like, well, I'm, why would I want, why would I invest 100K in my business? That's like my mortgage on my house. And I'm like, yeah, but that's also an investor's mortgage on his house. Like, why why is it, why is it okay for him to invest in your business, but you don't believe in your business enough to invest yeah. in it yourself? And they find that a really hard question to answer. And I think a lot of business owners kind of, um, uh, con themselves into thinking that they can kind of do all this stuff for themselves and it's totally risk-free, but it's not the case, is it? 
Absolutely not. And anyone who's going to, whoever you approach for funding, whether it's family and friends, which tends to be the first starting point, or whether it's your bank, or whether it's um, more formal um, sort of venture capital or even PE housing type type things, looking after the equity, looking to invest in the business, they're going to be wanting to make sure you've got some skin in the game uh, and something to lose if it doesn't go right. Um, and that can be a combination of taking a very, very modest salary rather than paying yourself 50, 60 grand or more uh, per annum. But typically, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be some moderate to large risk to you as an individual owner of the business, founder of the business. If it goes wrong, you're going to take a hit as well. And I think you've got to you've got to take you've got to get your head around that before you start going and talking to people about finance. So you're absolutely right, Robin. Um, that's key. And there has to also be an element of like validation as well. So if you've got, if it's a new business, for example, like why go out and get investment? Like there isn't a business in this day and age that you can't launch now and go out and kind of just um, test the marketplace. Um, Dan Priestley talks about marketing for um, signals, not sales. So go out there and just ask the marketplace whether they want your product or not. And again, that comes back to like going out and it's, it's data. It's going out and gathering enough data that proves that your business is going to stand up financially, yeah. um, you know, and strategically like moving forward as well. Absolutely. Uh, and you, you've got to have that view about where you're going with the business. And I think it brings it under very neatly to another point. When you're starting a business, I think this is sort of one of the things um, – that I found fascinating in starting the business was keeping the overheads down was a key for me. And I probably took that to, to a business partner to the nth degree where we tended to do everything ourselves. Um, looking back now, I really wish, really wish I'd actually sort of bitten the bullet and said, well, what's um, designing and, and setting up a website, um, doing social media stuff setting up the financial system, surprising that maybe for coming from an accountant myself. I wish I'd pass that on to someone who, you know, that's their core role uh, and they could do it downside quicker and probably cheaper than me doing it. But of course, I corralled everything as did my partner. We split it up um, and, and, and therefore we delayed quite significantly just getting the sort of the, the building box in place, sort of the building box getting those in place delayed us actually going out and doing what we should be doing, which is getting business coming in. Yeah. And that, that I think, I think that's quite important, but then equally, I'm kind of a big believer in sort of right time, right place. And if you weren't ready to kind of launch it in a big way, then you weren't ready. And it's as simple as that. Actually, sometimes the slow and steady and cautious approach is, um, you know, that, that ultimately is what keeps businesses going for hundreds of years and don't just kind of like, you know, we've, we've, all, we've seen it, you know, we've been through the dot com, you know, bubble where all those businesses all had, all of a sudden had vastly overinflated yeah. stock values, you know, Next next month they're gone, and it's just like that. That's not healthy either. There's a lot that does a lot more damage um, to a lot more people very very quickly. I think. Um, so I'm I'm a big fan of slow and steady and cautious. There is a right time for accelerating that growth as well. But um, um, I was going to ask as well. Like obviously we you, you, we've kind of talked about two of the levers, and you mentioned there were eight levers. So we talked about putting the prices up and keeping your overheads sort of um, down or at a reasonable level. What are the other six levers? Well, that varies from business to business. It depends what sector you're in, to be quite, quite frank. But, but broadly, it's, it's going to be around, you mentioned the key one, if you put your prices up, that's always going to trickle straight down to the bottom line without touching the sides and going out to anyone else. That's all going to be going down to your profit. That's happy days. Um, obviously, doing things, you can't do things in isolation in the business. You can't put your prices up without something else happening. And that's something will tend to be, some of your customers will say, well, actually, no, we're not gonna, I'm not going to start with this. They'll, they'll basically walk, go off somewhere else to, to your competitors. 
quite often, of course, there's the customers who are the ones causing you most grief anyhow, and you're not too sad to say goodbye to them. It's a brave person who does adopt that price up strategy, um, but quite often it works very well. Um, so pricing up is one thing. Looking at your direct costs, so the stuff that you, know, that you need to buy in to deliver a service. If you're a consultancy business, you might be buying in consultants to help advise on uh, a web development or, or whatever it might be. If you're a manufacturing business, you're buying in widgets to do something to them to then sell them on as a finished product. So that's another one, is, is your direct costs. Um, mentioned overheads as well and I'm, 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 particularly in the sort of the world I think we're talking about here which is a service type business what we are you are Robin and a lot of your people who are probably listening to this uh, service businesses um, if you can keep your overheads as tight as possible um, then it gives you the flexibility to weather storms when, when, when they come along and there can be a number of other issues where you can play around with particularly the working capital by that I mean um, the money you need to make the business operate because in most businesses you tend to get paid after you've paid money out, paid by your customers, after you pay money out to your, your contractors or suppliers. So it's managing that working capital. How, when do you pay your or when do you get your money in from your customers? How do you expedite that? Are you invoicing as soon as the work is finished or are you waiting to the end of the month? If you are waiting to the end of the month, don't because you're wasting two, three weeks potentially of stuff which you could have covered recovered earlier. Um, are you actually actively chasing the debts? Uh, and there's plenty of credit control issues that you know, qualified credit controller can tell you all about. Uh, and conversely, how do you manage what you're paying at, which you do have some control over, limited control, but some control over, to your suppliers? Uh, and you know, one of the mantras we've been reinforcing with people is don't take the piss with businesses by, by paying them late or, or delaying them significantly, because when, sure as eggs is eggs, when you're going to need them most, they're not going to turn around and be very helpful to you. So I think you've got to, you know, what goes around comes around in my book. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that as well. And it's interesting what you say about kind of the, the not delaying the invoicing side of it. I have got an, a, a client at the moment who is insistent on waiting until the first of every month to send out or the 30th of every month to send out his invoices. And I'm like, no, because you're just, you're just killing your cash flow. And he's like, oh, but it means that I know that on X day, I'm going to get a, a big you know, wedge your cash in and, and it doesn't take much to kind of like, you know, disrupt that just a little bit, but he's kind of six weeks behind on, you know, where he should be cash flow wise, yeah. which is a bit, you know, I keep on hammering it. I'll keep on chipping away at that. Well, I totally endorse what you're saying. I mean, that's assuming that he's providing a service and the service has been done on say, the 13th of the month or something. Why yeah. wait until the, the, the turn a bit weeks to, to invoice it? Madness. Yeah. Matt, I'll quote that. I'll say, Mark Nichols said you're mad, uh, mad and, and see what he comes back with. You have something as well, which is about um, uh, where you talk about kind of straining your creditors. So I think you kind of alluded to that as one of those levers. What what does that mean? Well, straining creditors it is it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting notion. Um, it, it, it's no, demystifying. De, 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 de it is no more or no less than naturally we use creditors i.e. people we owe money to to and, and vary the times we take to pay people to actually make sure that our cash flow sort of stacks up um yes by all means do that that's good practice but if you extend your creditors i take long significantly longer to pay them without explaining why or getting their agreement and as i've said earlier um that's when you start straining them and that's where um, the relationship will be strained as a consequence and they won't be there for you when you need them. 
There we go. So uh, we're coming towards the end of the interview, Mark. So I've got a couple of questions. So what are you working on at the moment? I understand you've got a, a little app on your website called the Profit Booster. Tell us about that. Profit Booster, it's not, it's not so much an app. It's a, it's a, in fact, it comes product. Um, it's basically uh, an environment where we can model your business, specifically your business. It's not a generic one, but your business based on numbers that you've produced for the last financial year. Uh, we can then um, model various scenarios. So going back to your comment about scenario planning, um, and I encourage you to start having fun and start pulling levers, hard, soft, or otherwise, and we can identify um, which ones you should pull in priority, um, and as a result of which you can come up with a scenario which is probably more of an action plan for you to think, well, actually, if I could do that, that's the output. Um, as I've alluded to before, when you do something to a business, there's always going to be an effective an input. Um, so when you do something with your prices, something else is going to happen. So you can model that or we can help you model that as well. As a result of which, you will end up with a series of forecasts in terms of uh, profit loss forecasts, uh, balance sheet forecasts, which are very important from a banking perspective, uh, lenders, and also critically uh, at this time a cash flow forecast um, and I think you know that's where businesses should be um, and, and the ones who actually spend time and invest time uh, in getting that right are going to be the ones that survive. And I think it's also fair to say, you know, and emphasize this, don't try and do this on your own. You know, there's a reason why um, people like Mark exist because they're much better at kind of doing the maths than, than we are. So we should be kind of outsourcing this stuff and letting the ex, you know, the experts the do do their job basically. Yeah, absolutely spot on. I couldn't put it better myself. Nice and succinct there. Cool. Uh, I've got two more questions there. First of all, how can people get hold of you if they want to ask you more questions about the the financial state of their business? Uh, well, the best thing I would have thought is go to our website, which is www.tectonapartnership.com. That's T-E-C-T-O-N-A partnership.com. Um, and all the stuff is on there. Please go and have a look. I'm afraid I don't have a book to hold up and say, we will also share a uh, a link in the show notes for this as well so anybody yeah. wants to get hold of mark can go and check out his um uh, the website and also you're on linkedin and twitter too so we'll share links to those okay fi- final question uh, and you have had a bit of warning for this to prepare for it but um you i mean it, it, it still amazes me i'll say as well mark you're like you're i, I find you incredibly fascinating because the, the the work which you do the background which you've got you're also then a very avid like car fanatic. You have we share a, a love of pale air or uh, ale uh, generally ale, anyway. Yeah. Golf. You're, you're you're a pilot as well, which is just utterly amazing. But we're gonna. Uh, this might give us another insight as well into your background. So I'm really curious to see what you're going to come up with. But we're going to hop into the fearless business time machine for a second. Um, we, you get to punch in the date that we're going to go back to, and you get to have a word with yourself, Mark, back then. So uh, when is it, and what would you say to yourself? It's a combination, I suppose, of, of work and personal. Um, I'm going back to 2012, which is when we started Tectona. Um, and, and just look, reflecting on, I'm not going to drag you through it, but reflecting on my career, it was fairly straightforward up to then. It was employment all the way through, so I could sit back and obviously provide what I was supposed to do, end up with a nice salary check coming in every month. So that was all fine and dandy. When... Um, We've alluded to that my, my time at Business Link, which was hugely enjoyable and challenging and everything else. But when, that, when, when the Conservative government said, right, we're not going to provide government funding for business support, then Business Link um, 
ended and then therefore I was made redundant. And that's quite a, a humbling process and procedure of being made redundant. And, and you start questioning your value, what you added, and all that sort of stuff. So the real challenge was what to do then. Um, and after a sort of small amount of time at the, the FD Centre, who, who, who business which do what we do but they're sort of a, a big player and, and uh, they do a lot of things right but some bits I would disagree with but the point here is I came to that point what the hell should I do and going back in that time machine I would be saying to myself Mark you've got a huge amount of self-worth by that I mean you've got confidence in yourself you know what, you, what, you, what you, you're doing is, is right and you've just got to trust yourself and going back to then and particularly made very poignant for me because Almost the day before, the week before, we started the business, I had a horrendous car crash. And I, I, at the time, thought, is this a sign? I shouldn't be doing this business thing. Uh, but we went ahead and did it. Um, and it sort of worked reasonably well for the first year or so. Um, and then it sort of took off. And we, we, we've been doing fairly well since. But, uh, and the point I would like to make was I had a second crunch point, which was when my partner said, well, actually, Mark, I'm, he was getting approaching 65 then. It hadn't done as much as he had expected when he invested in the business. I had to make a decision to either back myself and buy him out. There was no option really to sell the business. It wasn't a saleable business at that particular point or to fold it up. Uh, and I'm so glad that I did have that self-worth, that confidence in self and the team around me as well to be able to go down that route and actually buy him out. And here we are five years later still around, um, hit a little bit by COVID, but nevertheless smiling and, and engaging with people like you, which is really enjoyable. Well, you, you really make a difference, not just to the businesses where you place your, um, your the, you know, the CFOs, the FDs that you have um, within your organization. You really make a difference then, but you also make a big difference kind of business locally as well. Uh, through, you know, we met through networking at, at an event which you run. And I can see, um, you know, that, that one event, you know, brightens up, 20, 30, 40 people's lives every time we kind of meet up and things like that. So I know that there's a lot of people out there who are also very grateful for the decisions which you've made as well. Um, very tough decisions at the time, probably in 2012, but now it's it's definitely working. So I just wanted to th say thank you for that. And also thank you very much for being guest on the Fearless Business podcast as well. Well, thank you very much indeed for letting us be part of it. I really enjoyed it, Robin.